We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City on June 4th. We are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass female celebrities who have been torn down by tabloids, dissected by social media, and faced heartaches and triumphs and come out of it all even stronger. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I am a writer, comedian, and filmmaker. And this week, we are book clubbing Carly Simon's memoir, which came out in 2015, titled The Boys in the Trees. This is a book about growing up as the ugly duckling sister, going on to become the famous one, and along the way, collecting a little black book of men she loved or slept with that put that it puts all little black books to shame. Carly really threw it down, and we're gonna get into all of it. That was Carly's hit song, You're So Vain. And one of the verses is definitely about Warren Beatty, which she talks about in the book. And you'll also hear some stories about him where you'll be like, yes, this song is absolutely about you. But she says the other verses are about other guys. And she declines to name who because she says they don't know the song is about them and she needs to tell them first. So I think you'll have some guesses by the end of this episode. 
Before we dive in, this is our fourth episode as the Apple Spotlight Pick. Apple is shining their light on our podcast, and I feel so special. I really, spoiler alert, I feel like Carly's sister Lucy in the book, which is to say, I really feel like daddy's favorite. I feel like daddy's favorite and I love it. So if you're new to the podcast, start with an episode of a celebrity you think you know really well and see just how surprised you are after you hear from them in their memoir. Or if you want my recommendations, start with Delta Burke, even if you don't know a thing about her, I think you'll love it. Or Jessica Simpson and Mariah Carey's episodes are great places to start. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a nice review. I read them all. They mean the most to me. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy the podcast and subscribe because we have some phenomenal episodes coming up, including Gabrielle Union's memoir, which is one of my favorite memoirs. And also for Valentine's Day, we have a very special episode where we are covering Lonnie Anderson and Burt Reynolds competing divorce memoirs. They, they wrote memoirs in the 90s, just ripping each other apart after their divorce. And we're going to get into all of it. But first, buckle in for today's episode. My guest is so incredible. Please welcome the absolutely divine Leighton Meester. Hi, Leighton. Hi. I'm so happy to be joining you. Oh, my God. I'm so excited that you're doing this. Leighton is wildly <laughs> famous, and you don't need me to tell you who she is, but I'm going to anyway. She starred as Blair on Gossip Girl. She's been in a million movies. She starred in the ABC sitcom Single Parents, which our guest for the Leah Remini episode, Taylor Cox, also wrote on. Leighton's also been on Broadway. She's modeled for huge brands, but my favorite credit of yours— you you looked at me like you're surprised. <laughs> you're like, did I? Um, but my favorite credit of yours is that you are the voice on Cobra Starship's Good Girls Go Bad, and you're in the music video, and you've released your own albums. You're such an incredible singer, like truly incredible. And I, I it makes me so excited to talk about Carly Simon with you. Thanks so much. Um, I was like uh, amazed. You're like, she is a model. And I'm like, that's Right. I'm going to go around saying that I am a model. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, I'm so excited. And honestly, like the musical aspect of this book, which is obviously like it's all weaved throughout, it was so touching and she's just such a genius. And so it was amazing and like inspiring musically as well to read this book. Yeah. And I'm starting to find a pattern in these books of like the the women who are not only singers, but songwriters, their books are incredible. And you're like, well, of course, because you're writing music, you're writing art all the time. So when you turn it into a book, like that's also going to be so beautiful. But hers is like uh, definitely the best written celebrity memoir I've it's ever poetry. read. It is poetry. Yeah. It's, you know, the level of writing in this book is not, uh, this isn't the norm for these books. <laughs> this is like a really special one. No, I mean, you can tell, obviously, she's like an amazing and prolific singer-songwriter. She, you know, has done it all. But then, like, reading this book, you're like, oh, you really did do all those songs. You really were a poet. Like, you're so, she, you know, it just makes sense that, like, she's capable of such a an amazing um, piece of, I mean, it's a masterpiece. It's oh wonderful. My God. Totally, totally. Okay, so before we dive in, I introduce all my guests with the story of how we first met. And you and I first met when the four of us went bowling. Um, at Bullmore. At Bull Bull was it Bullmore? I don't know. B bowl time? It's no more. Bowl I'll tell you. Oh, Leighton, how dare. <laughs> it's close. <laughs> They're gone. There's more where that came from. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it was... 
I remember when Yasser was like, oh, you want to go bowling? I was like, oh, that sounds so fun. But the the thing I didn't realize is that you, Adam, and Yasser are all great bowlers. And I'm... The, I was the only one who was just living in the gutter. and But then it was our first time meeting. So it's like at some point everyone had to like silently agree to like not comment on what was happening so that we could hang out. <laughs> I don't remember you being a necessary. I feel like I have good times and bad times bowling. Like it's always really fun. It's more fun. I feel like when I'm actually hitting pins and like whenever I'm losing and doing really poorly, I'm always like, it's just a game. And then when I'm doing really well, I'm like in your face. In your face. So I- <laughs> well, I, that night, you all crush. Like you were all like, I don't even know bowling well. This is why I'm so, I should never go bowling, but you guys were all at like 170 and I would be at like 30. Like Chelsea accidentally hit 30 That pins. says a lot. That says good things about you that you don't spend a lot of time <laughs> focusing on bowling. I feel like this is like, yes, I my Florida roots. And Adam doesn't seem like, I mean, he's not really a big bowler, but he does it to, well, not in a long time, but he does it to sort of, um, I don't know, to meet me at my level, (laughs) which is very sweet. I love that. Wow. Well, Yasser loves bowling, so I should probably be trying to meet him at his level. (laughs) Instead, I don't even know the numbers on the scoreboard. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that was our first time meeting. And the one thing I, I mean, I remember many things, but one of the things I loved from that meeting is I just remember Adam showing us a video of you like deadlifting like 300 pounds or something like it was like and I was like oh my god like you're you're secretly like so strong it was 300 why pounds why did he do that <laughs> terrible he was proud it was amazing yes clearly it's very sweet but oh wow that's yeah retroactively very embarrassing that's- I remember <laughs> after we left like the second we said goodbye I texted Yasser and in all caps I was like marry her and he goes you got it Oh, my God. Okay, Leighton, I did not know that. <laughs> now I'm going to make so, him like... So, you're welcome. Um, honestly, <laughs> seriously, thank you. <laughs> um, if, he, if he wasn't going to do it on his own, I, I any push, you know? <laughs> um, okay, so you checked out like a bunch of books before choosing Carly's. What made you choose this book? Well, I had, I had looked at a few other um, books and I thought like a couple of them seemed like, you know, trauma, trauma, trauma and all that. <laughs> I don't want to like laugh that off, but I just didn't know if I could get into that headspace. Yeah. Um, as well as like unpack it on this podcast. And while this book, as we already talked about, like it is very, dense and poetic and beautiful. And I cried from beginning to end. Um, and forgive me if I do while we're talking today. I, I but, probably will um, too. So please, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I usually cry on this podcast alone. So I would love someone to join me. Um, no problem. Uh, but yeah, I think like also it is fun. It is like, you know, late 60s, the, the this time where she was coming up. And I guess like I've always put Carly Simon in that category with Joni Mitchell and Carol King, just kind of like what she talks about in the book. But I've, I, I just didn't know much about her story other yeah. than like the kind of like affairs she had had or whatever. But I was just going to say, it was such a great pick. I, I didn't even have this on my initial list. And it's like, it was just such a great find. 
Yeah. And I think the, I mean, honestly, like the Mick Jagger, um, Warren Beatty, all that stuff that we can obviously dive into. Um, that stuff was like interesting to me. The other part of it was that I saw when I was buying it, that there was an audio book and I was like, I've never listened to an audio book and I've not, I, uh, read a memoir either. Um, oh wait, so let's call out. You've a- not read a memoir. This is your first memoir. <laughs> this is also your very first podcast ever. And I'm like, I want to say it because I just feel so honored and I want people to know. <laughs> it's my honor. I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky to be doing this. Um, okay. So this was so- first memoir and audiobook. Yes. And so I will say like this, I don't know if you listen to any part of the audiobook, but it is the perfect thing to accompany this. And I know that there's like audiobooks for kind of everything now, but because it's like her adding little things and she's just riffing and going off for like pages worth of the book without, and music and um, just like little asides that I feel like I can't imagine not having that reference while I was reading it. Like it, it's obviously beautifully written, but, um, the music that goes along with the narration is really gorgeous. And, um, we can talk about this later, but she has a stutter. And so she talks about how even reading this, she makes a point while she's reading it saying, I'm even nervous. I have to read this in a dark room to nobody because oh. I'm so insecure about reading out loud. And I, I mean, just even things like that. That's incredible. Um, and she's very funny with her delivery. Really? Oh, man. So I, yeah, I never do the audiobooks because I'm always recapping it on the Instagram. But when I hear about audiobooks like this one and Mariah's, it may, and, and Jessica Simpson's, like, I want to listen to the audiobook. And and listening and reading at the same time just feels like so powerful. Her voice is very smoky as well, so it's so nice to hear her oh, talking. Oh, I love that. Um, by the way, earlier you were like, "Oh, I I read these books and it was like trauma, trauma, trauma," and I do feel like that should be the tagline for the podcast. <laughs> it's Celebrity Book Club with Chelsea Devonta's tagline: trauma, trauma, trauma. <laughs> because like, yeah, they're all just like intensely traumatic books. But this one, this one was like a great blend of like so deep, but but joyful to to read. Um, it was written in 2015, so pretty recently, but most of it takes place in her childhood and when she's becoming a star and married to James Taylor. So it's like this, the late 60s, 70s, 80s. Just like you said, like reading this book, you're like, oh, this is the 70s. So let's start. I want to start with reading actually the last paragraph of chapter one. From the outside, mommy and daddy's marriage was iridescent like a pearl under radiant light, especially on nights when they put on a show for an audience of dinner guests. Alone, once the guests left, they were never quite as shimmering. Professionally and personally, Daddy would rise, and by the mid-1950s, when I was only 10, began his slow-motion fall. The rising part, when Daddy was a publishing entrepreneur, innovator, and magnet, at ease with high society and the New York intelligentsia, is mostly a legend to me, hard to square with the pained, remote, brittle father I remember much later, whose company and wife had been both wrested from him and who roamed the floors of our house as if he were already a half-vanished man. Oh, <sighs> gosh. Well, first off, I, uh, you know, I did not know Carly Simon was the Simon in Simon and Schuster. I didn't Schuster either. Until this book. Yeah, I was like, I, I didn't know she came from that at all. So that was pretty wild. Yeah. And I mean, my immediate reaction is for sure, like whatever her complaints are, and this is the wrong way to start 
this is starting off on the wrong foot with Carly Simon because she's amazing. <laughs> but, but like, you know, the first part is her talking about her nannies and her chefs and the different levels of her house and all the affluence and all the celebrities that are in and out of her life. And um, that continues throughout uh, the book, the rest of her life, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is even more fun. But um, my first reaction was like, okay, whatever she's saying, but it does go to show, I mean, she was deprived of unconditional love from the beginning. And so it, it really set her up to have a lot of dysfunction in her life and having this um, sort of larger than life father, obviously wasn't always great. I mean, I think like I I have a quote Ooh, that I yes. was um, interested in in reading, and I and obviously like I don't know what order, but oh, at no, some no, point we can get into. But it says um, a lot of my own struggles, good and bad, were the same as his about her father. Self-centeredness, shame, inadequacy, ambition, depression, the songs I would someday write, the music I would someday sing were always accompanied by an image or an idea of daddy, one seemingly locked inside of me forever. Oh, it's so crushing. So yeah, first off, and we are going to really dive into it later, but okay, she good. comes <laughs> from money and then it becomes this whole thing throughout the book of like, but I don't really come from money. And it, it was the only part of the book that I hated. <laughs> um because yeah she's just constantly playing it down but i understand why she's she's doing that is because she's constantly being punished or not constantly but often being punished by the people in the industry surrounding her and men that she loves for coming from a uh, I guess a rich household yeah and she's very ashamed of that um and it's also like I don't know. I don't know how that's a strike against her, but I know um, I, I, it I seems com- to yeah. be. I completely agree with you. Like people are all like, and we're jumping ahead. But it's like Mick Jagger will be like, uh, you know, whenever I want to be emotionally distant from you, I just remember how you have like a lot of money. And <laughs> she's sort of like, well, and and this is what annoys me about the book because I think a lot of rich people do this. They realize it's not cool to be rich, so they're constantly trying to prove that like they're not that rich. And then like, but then that itself is annoying. So she'll be like, well. My dad actually lost his company and I'm living on a small allowance. And I all my feelings were like, okay, but the allowance is being rich. Like like you knowing about Sarah Lawrence. That's you only know about that school because you come from money or you knew someone who could put in a call for you. That's coming from money. And I think a lot of people are like, "Well, I don't have that much money." And it's like, it, if you can pay for your groceries, you're not worried if the card goes through, you are rich. And I am saying this now. I am now a rich person, you know, but it really annoys me when people are, are, are like try and get out of their life to be more hip and cool. And it's like, it's cooler to be rich. I, I, sw- I it is cooler to be born rich. Just own it. Yeah. And I, I mean, also throughout the book, just her talking about like her fashion and her musical taste. And honestly, like even just listening to the audiobook, like her just throwing around big words that I definitely had to look up. Same. <laughs> um, she's very relaxed and casual with gigantic um, words in her vocabulary. And like, that's a really positive, awesome thing. And um, she has really good taste and she's very cultured and yeah. well-read. Yeah. And-, and that comes from having this type of background where like their house has like uh it's like Jackie Robinson comes over for dinner and Dorothy Parker and like all these sort of New York um fancy fancy crowds but yes because she doesn't have love she's sort of like this childhood is barren and everyone looks at it as like you're the princess from the castle and it's 
neither's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, obviously there is some, there's some truth in both of those ideas, but yes, she did have the ability to go on a tour uh, at a really young age yeah. based on just having money to have a van to go do that or whatever. So, But that's um, how you know someone comes from money. Like, she's not... And again, I love Carly. This is really the only fault. Like, she doesn't even seem to be aware that, like, having a van to tour, that's coming from money. But instead, she's like, well, it's just a van. And it's like, yes, exactly. Yeah. That's why you come from money. <laughs> or going to England and being like, well, you know, like, somebody being like, oh... Call this guy. He's a friend of your father's. Yes. Really feeling really desperate or like lonely in a new city is a huge part. I've, I think like being young, especially trying to make it, is like going somewhere and you don't know a soul. And 100%. you're trying to like make connections or whatever. Obviously having connect whatever. She, she's amazing, but she's amazing. She's amazing. She still it's has one some fault. underlying shame. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but yes. I think a lot of it is just ingrained from feeling like shameful about it, but there is some like really fun aspect to reading all about like the late sixties, early seventies, like rich hippies. Oh like, my that's gosh. Yeah. Super fun. The scene painting in this, it feels like you're reading a play. Like it, it it's not Tennessee Williams because Tennessee Williams is the South, but it feels like this like upper, like upper New York, East side. Like it's so fanciful. It's gorgeous. Okay. So to recap, um, her, her kind of childhood is her dad is a publishing Titan. Carly is the ugly duckling of her sisters and they're the beautiful ones. And her dad tells Carly that her nose is fat. She has like an autograph book and he writes in her book, a poem about how her nose is fat. And it becomes this like massive arc of never being close to her dad or having his affection. And then later her becoming the star in a family where like it was supposed to be someone else. And so it always sticks with her of like, oh, I'm not good enough. And that that really hit me too, because um, the man I thought was my dad also hated how I looked. And he would say I was too fat and I was too loud and I was too tall. And it's if it gets in you that early, then you just walk around forever having these like beliefs about yourself, regardless of who you are, because you look at Carly and you're like, oh my God, you stunning goddess. But her dad told her that she was ugly. And so now she walks through life being like, I'm ugly. Yeah. And I mean, you have those insecurities no matter what you're told. Yeah. I mean, society puts it on you. Other people put it on A you. One issue Guys of Cosmo you date that break up with you. you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> But him writing that poem on top of her mom, who told her that uh, men like small women, Ugh. that's something that I think is like, these are things that you gave gave to her. Like you made her, you physically, you were with a tall man and you made a girl who's 5'10". Tell her to own it, to be confident. Yes. Um, obviously that's easy enough to say, but, but it made her super insecure about how tall she was. Yeah. And constantly, you know, thinking about that when she dated guys and um, it's so unnecessary. It's so unnecessary. She had a great <laughs> sentence about it that I want to read. Um, I remembered mommy always telling me that men prefer small women, both rating my department of self-worth and elevating her own. And it's like, oh, because her mom was really tiny. So she just kept building herself up and shitting on Carly. And Carly says this line as she's out looking for low heels, which, <laughs> which is something. So my mom's also 5'10". I'm like 5'7 I've spent my life looking for low heels. One, I can't walk in them very well. But two, I always am like trying to be like that stupid thing of like be smaller, be tinier. And I, so I was always looking for like one inch heels, which are hard to find and be cute. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, I do think that that's obviously a theme for the rest of the book. That Like her mom tears her down 
especially in her most most successful times. So we'll get to that. But um, by the way, small heels, people need to make better short heels that are cute. And right? also, like, why don't they? Somebody alert Shorter Jessica heels are Simpson. more comfortable. Yes. Oh my gosh. Like <laughs> someone start making every sexy ass pair of heels with a, a one inch on them and you will become a billionaire. Actually, should this just be our business and we don't put this yes, out Yes, actually, no. This, Let's this get into shoes. Let's get into shoes. Um, so this huge event, yeah. So her mom is going to fall out of the book and she becomes a villain. And Carly's not even that mean about her. She just kind of writes the facts and you're like, oh God. Uh, but her mom is very worried about her brother's masculinity because he's in a house full of women and, and the nannies are women. So her mom gets a manny. She hires this guy. He's, his name is Ronnie. He's 19. And they begin an affair. So her mom's 42, Ronnie is 19, and behind her dad's back or right in front of him, they are together for years to the point that Ronnie lives on the third floor of the house and her mom moves up to the third floor and is like, oh, your dad's snoring is bad. I'm just going to live on the third floor. And then there's like a secret tunnel where they, yeah, exactly. There's like a secret (laughs) tunnel where they can like sleep with each other and her dad's just like downstairs like withering away and her mom has this affair and Carly obviously like hates Ronnie with all her heart and now I do too. I do too. Um but uh obviously it's her mom as well. Yeah. And um th- the interesting part of that is she kind of has a crush on him or is she wants his affection and his attention. And by the way, he's a a creep as well because there's one part where they're all getting ready naked in the bathroom, the three sisters, and he's like peeking in yes, and and like (laughs) pretending that he wasn't. And like, also, I mean, it's not right at any age, but I think he was 19 and they were like young, like I, they're like 10 and 11. Oh yeah. Then that's, Super creepy. Super creepy. But she did have this weird, like, older guy crush. And the fact that he loved her mom and it and just, her mom I was think, tiny, was very confusing. she was tall. Yeah, it makes sense of, like, why she... Also, by the way, so this Peeping Tom story, they catch Ronnie spying on them. And one of her sisters runs out and is, like, around. And she's like, oh, my God, stop spying on us. He pretends that he was practicing football moves. So literally, they're like, stop spying on us. And because he's hunched over looking through whatever hole is in the wall, he's like, huh, huh, hike? Like, he shouts hike and, like, runs away. Uh, which also, like, I don't know if you found this, but to be true, but she writes about Ronnie and her mom like, they're very stupid. And <laughs> I, she's obviously, like, very mad at her mom, which I absolutely get. But actually, wait, let me read this this tiny passage. She says, Whenever I heard Mommy and Ronnie in conversation, their words flew around like big, beautiful, dumb birds. Clearly, it came as a relief to Mommy not to have to pit herself against Daddy's fast-witted authors and friends. And then it, she her last sentence is... Um, Mommy was now free to wallow in lays in the relief of easy agreements and dozing silences, ahs and oohs and other cries of delighted seagulls on the wings of easy flight. Like, as smart as she could was like, my mom's a dumb bitch. (laughs) Here are some big words to tell you that my mom is stupid and she liked Ronnie because he was stupid. And you're just like, oh, you are so mad at them. And I get it. Yeah. And I, I also that's like, it's kind of sad. I mean, it yeah. sounds like her mom always felt like she had to be the, the pristine hostess and entertaining and using, you know, pr- silverware or whatever it was that she had <laughs> yeah. to do in that New York high society. <laughs> 
um, and lived comfortably, but at the same time was like, I kind of want to not be doing that. So um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's sort of in its own way, maybe sympathetic to her and totally. how like she had to kind of come up, come meet, like rise up to that station in life that she wasn't comfortable with. And, um, but she also just hated Ronnie and his toenail or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. He has an ingrown toenail that Carly describes. So funny that she includes that. But yeah, that is a really great point. Carly's mom's mom was an orphan. And so Carly's mom is probably bringing her mom and her whole family up with her when she marries Carly's dad and has to come up to those expectations. And yeah, I mean, I would be so mad if every night I had to impress Yasser's friends with big words. I'm, I mean, I would just get so resentful. I, I can see me mispronouncing them on purpose to make him mad. Like, that's probably where I would go with it. <laughs> The other thing is, and I guess that this is also going backwards, Billy, that sort of, I feel like, plays a role. So is that something that we should discuss? Yes. No, yeah, let's talk about Billy right now. So when Carly is seven, a family friend who is a 16-year-old boy named Billy has a crush, again, on Carly's sisters. So Carly's, like, never getting the attention. She's seven years old, though. And when she's seven, he gets her to do very sexual stuff with him in their in their family pool house for years and summers on end to the point where she's like, Billy was my master for six years. And she's she does such a great job of describing how she wanted the attention and how it made her feel special. And she knew he liked her sister, but then she, he would be with her and, and the sexual things felt good. But then also she's seven. And so it's incredibly damaging and and terribly fucks her up and she just she just describes it so perfectly and then when she finally tells her mom her mom bans billy for a month <laughs> a single month yeah i mean i i think it's easy like when you lay it bare exactly what billy was which was a piece of shit predator that's how he yeah. got in to this situation with her and i don't know who else he did it to but her older sisters were always and i'm sure he knew and knew how to prey upon her um, yeah. you know, went up to a seven-year-old girl and said, does your older sister have pubes? Knowing that <sighs> she was insecure about how, like, her older sisters were prettier and more, you know, I guess, loved in her parents' eyes. Um, yeah. I'm assuming that he could ascertain that from the, like, family dynamic, but then... I feel like they can always tell. They can find the weak one. They know which girl has the daddy issue, and they, like, go for her. Yeah. I, I totally feel like he was hunting Yeah, her. he's also a pedophile. He is, uh, he is yeah. of a sexual age that he should be with other people his age. And it damaged her, and I think it sort of set the stage for a really dysfunctional um, cycle for her, as well as confusing the hell out of her. Because, yeah. you know, if you're sexualized at a young age, which, I mean, I feel like you do an amazing job at, like, unpacking this on this podcast all the time, but... It's so confusing because little children have these feelings, but they do not need to be experiencing them with people who are more sexually mature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and preying upon, you know, you're, when you're a human, humans are born into this world with, with sexuality. And to get in when, when you're a child and, and mess with that is, yeah, it's, it's really horrific. And what I find really interesting is that and and I I feel like I've said this on the podcast before, but I, I don't remember. So she has a stutter. I, through um, trauma, I almost said trauma work, like I am <laughs> through, through reading about trauma on my own. Um, <laughs> I don't do trauma work. 
found out that pretty often if you had sexual trauma as a child, you develop a stutter. And Carly doesn't relate her stutter to sexual trauma, but this is like a known thing. And also Jessica Simpson had a stutter and she had sexual trauma as a child. And so many people, and, and maybe she doesn't realize it, but it, it even comes to... um you can't get the words out of your mouth to tell someone what happened to you and it creates your stutter. And so then you can sing though, because stutterers can always sing. And so that's how Jessica becomes a singer. It's how Carly becomes a singer. But weirdly, her mom sends her to a therapist who then is trying to sing with her because she has a stutter. And he sings, Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire. Has someone ever touched you down there? Oh, God. And I was like, is this... Is this like a therapy molestation song or like did he come up with and then Carly has to sing back like yes someone has like touched me down there as they like rhyme with Fred Astaire. Yeah, I didn't understand that. There was like a whole chapter devoted to that Dr. Franchafa like yeah. technique or whatever and he it was just so odd. Um, and he also never really got to the bottom of it. And she was sort of like chastising him, like, oh, he didn't, he couldn't even get it out of me. It's like, this is a very strange technique that I don't know. I've never heard of. I don't know that song. I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah, got terrible lyrics, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And also like, maybe like don't drag Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire <laughs> into a childhood's, uh, a child's like, um, you know, molestation uh, confession no. I very weird very weird yeah and it's so weird it's just like kind of nothing ever comes from it it also feels very much for the time and the wealth of like you just don't really deal with it like send Carly into a room with a therapist who will sing weird songs to her and we'll just move on with life and and then okay so the other um childhood sexual thing that happens is her friend Nora I love who, this part me too her friend so by the way, after this encounter, Carly's going to say, I didn't know what lesbians were, and I, I met my first lesbian, but goes into three pages of her and her teen friend Nora practicing on each other and kind of like doing what Nora's boyfriend does to her, but they're fully having sex. And it I loved it because I think so many people have experiences like this, but also it's so erotic that when I was reading this, I was like, I feel like I'm reading porn it, yeah. about like two young girls. <laughs> Did you feel that way? Um, A little bit, but I also saw obviously like she's an adult writing this, so she has her own perspective now. But I do think that what was so beautiful about it and it it was sweet and it was innocent yeah. and it was healing in a way because that is what first sexual experiences oh, such should a good be point. because yeah. her first sexual experiences were against her will when she was not equipped to confront those feelings and an older male's body like that's not something she should be seeing um so I mean, I don't know. I feel like there was something so innocent about her friend. This is definitely stuff that I did when I was a kid. Like, I would be with other little girls, you know, nine or 10 or whatever. Yeah. And we would show each other our bodies and we would touch each other. And it was almost like practicing and pretending the other person was a boy, actually. Yeah. yeah. And it didn't feel wrong. It didn't feel weird. I mean, certainly, like, we were hiding. But I don't think that it was something that what would ever be considered even sexual in a way like it was just so innocent and I yeah. think that this is the thing she was robbed of as a child which was just exploring naturally and coming to understand what her body would feel like and pretending yeah. each other were like boyfriend and girlfriend is just so sweet um I don't well, know I don't know if other people great think it's take sweet. on it 
No, I, there is a sweetness to, I mean, it's like, it's super sexual. So I was like, whoa, but it, you're, that is such a good point. Cause it is like a consensual, like teaching each other how our bodies work. It was kind it was pretty beautiful. And without being, having to sort of experience that for the first time with a boy, I guess, which could be, um, like re-traumatizing. Yeah. And make her think of, of Billy. Oh, right. Oh, God, and and really, Billy. like, the rest of her, at least her adolescence, she reflects on Billy and the part where she talks about, um, I don't, uh, again, too many spoilers, but she meets James Taylor as a teenager. And, yeah. like, she, even back then, she thought, like, I wish that Billy never happened. I felt so shamed, ashamed. And it scarred her and made her feel like she was tainted, like she was dirty. And yeah. she's like, what if I could just pretend that he never existed and that like it never happened? And uh, it's just so heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, that, that is, a, that's more my experience with it where like, you're just a kid, but then you walk away and you're like filled with the shame that would come from almost like going to church and being told like, She's not even religious, but it's just like it, you're a sinful, disgusting human and you're kids. So you can't recognize that it wasn't your fault or whatever. And then, yeah, you carry this like I'm a dirty, dirty, bad person with you. Yeah. Which. Oh, so then an, a huge part of the book is what Carly calls the beast. And a lot of this will come from what we just talked about. And I loved the beast because she basically calls the beast the inner voices in her head that tell her that she's a piece of shit all the time and kind of drag her into depression and anxiety. And my mom um, actually taught me about this. She called it taming your gremlins, which... By the way, I put that into my pilot. So if you, if my pilot ever goes, you see that. I didn't steal it from Carly. It's called Taming Your Gremlins. Um but where you like give it a name, where you're like, this is its name and you just treat it like this is this monster that like kind of lives with me and you talk to it, but it's not you. And RuPaul also calls it your inner saboteur. <laughs> and so like, I loved it. And the beast is throughout this book. And then the ending with the beast, which we won't spoil yet, is just like, I sobbed my eyes out. But yeah, did you relate to this part of the book at all with 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 the beast? Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I related to the most, and certainly, like, there were a lot of elements that I uh, relate to, but <laughs> um, but she, especially with the stutter, um, which kind of, like, came out when she was about to go out and perform Little Women as a small child with her sisters in a very innocent, like, backyard play for her family, which, like, yeah. you know, you wouldn't think the stakes were that high, but that amount of pressure is probably so huge and needing your parents' approval constantly and, and the validation um, that she never really got probably was a big part of yeah. that. <laughs> um, but the one thing was that she would find little tricks and little ways to hide it and, like, find different words. But the thing that made me so sad that I definitely relate to um, is how she would have a good day, but instead of enjoying and becoming more confident and empowered because of that good day, a good day of stuttering, like not not having to uh, stutter, she would just be worried and plagued with the idea that tomorrow is coming and she's going to, maybe she'll have a bad day. I don't yeah. know if that's as clear um, yes. with me explaining it, but just like, yeah, like I hope that I can perform like this tomorrow and the, the yeah. pressure that that caused. And, and you're kind of white knuckling it and the anxiety of like the panic of like, I'm going to stutter and embarrass myself. I'm going to stutter and embarrass myself. And that, that beast in her head being like, yeah, you are because you suck. <laughs> like, it, it's like, it's a lot. And I, I just loved how 
present the beast is in the book because the beast is present in my life. I mean, we hang it out all the time. So it's like, <laughs> I love that it was like part of her memoir and she didn't pretend that like, you know, because she's a huge star. Like she doesn't have to tell us about uh, her insecurity like this. Right. I, I think it's so um, poignant how she she wrestles with it and also how she talks about this business and it is the absolute worst business to try to be in, especially as a woman at that time, trying yes. to be, I mean, of course it's, it's still challenging, but I think like um, people just could just walk all over her and just uh, objectify her and certainly like say really mean things and and uh and she just never felt worthy. Yes, she never felt worthy and it and and it starts back in her house with her dad. Like it starts there and then it just it just is everywhere of like you're not worthy to be here, which I totally relate to. Okay, so we have to skip a lot for time, but she has this boyfriend named Nick who cheats and she destroys his house and I was like, "Yes." And then um <laughs> She, like, has to leave because she's, like, having the shakes, and she, like, goes to a therapist, and she's like, I have the shakes, I'm having a breakdown, and later finds out she was just allergic to wine, and I really related to that. I really, I mean, like, every time I have an ailment, it's like, oh, my God, it's huge, and it's like, oh, you're just allergic, um, and she has another relationship with a guy named Willie. I mean, the way she writes about love just knocks you off your feet. Um, and Willie also cheats, by the way. We're getting into a real pattern here, like, of these yes. men she has these incredible romances with. Yeah, exclusively. <laughs> yeah, and then they they always cheat, and she's always like, that's okay, and stays with them. It, it, to varying degrees. Like, the way she writes about it is incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think that what she wants is to be loved and be the only woman in their lives, but she also feels so unworthy to be in a relationship that's, you know, mutual and loving and supportive and safe. So um, the thing that I think is interesting when she she kind of almost, like, plays a character, and I know she's doing that for sure when she finds out her first boyfriend, who seems, for all intents and purposes, fairly sweet, um, he cheats on her, and she's like, I pretended that I was an actress in a movie and that I was <laughs> going to forgive him even though I knew he had done me wrong. Um, and then definitely like had to kind of put on that same type of character with Willie. But Willie empowered her in a lot of the same ways that Nick did to be more confident and outgoing and to feel beautiful and um, secure. Yeah, it's weird. You, you, you love these relationships she has because I think she loves them and she writes about them in such an exquisite way that when they cheat on her and she just keeps going, you're like, that sucks. But also you're like, oh, but you, it's clear you're like loving this relationship. She, she wrote um, a quote that like really kicked my ass and I'm still suffering from it. <laughs> and the, the quote is, has anyone ever properly explained love's weather patterns, low pressure systems, cold fronts, storms? Surviving its tides and seasons, I've found out, is a feat exclusively for the strong of heart. <sighs> I mean, just a knife of like, <laughs> of, of, cause you know, when you're in love, like it's, it's just nothing but incredible, but to take from a woman who's walked before you and lived so much life to be like, it is going to get cold and it's going to get hard. And are you going to survive it? And you have to have a strong heart to even be in love. I was just like, oh my God, Carly. I know. <laughs> no. I was going to say, that's why she is Carly Simon, like just yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, devastating. Um, And then, okay, the Sean Connery stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Car Carly's 
like notches on her belt, little black book are like my favorite part of this book. Um, so she she comes home from Europe with her sister Lucy after Willie like took them around the town and got them some gigs. And they're on the ship and they realize Sean Connery is on this ship from from Europe to America. And Carly trying to impress Willie is like, I'm going to write Sean Connery a letter. I'm going to see if he wants to fucking hang out. And she's name dropping like, I am the daughter of Simon, of Simon and Schuster. And she uses like big fancy words and she's like, this will get him. And I love that she's like, a big word is going to induce, like seduce this man when really all she's right is like, it does it, yeah. What does it is that she's like, we're sisters, we'd like to meet you. And I and he was like, me too. <laughs> and so they like start hanging out on the ship. Carly, Sean Connery, and her sister Lucy. And they're having like flirtations. And at one point he's like, shall we have a threesome? And Carly's like, I don't want to have a Simon sister sandwich. Like, no. And then on the very last night, she's like waiting for Sean to call. She's like, Sean's going to call our room. Her sister's like, who cares? Take the phone off the hook. And Carly doesn't. And then he calls. And her sister races and answers it. And she's like, well, Carly's in bed, but I'm free. I'll meet you on the deck. Oh, God. And she steals him. And like, <laughs> that bitch. And she, <laughs> that bitch. And she doesn't come home until five in the morning. She was out with Sean Connery all night. And Carly's like livid. It's like my sister who gets everything. But but what I absolutely loved about this is that she and her sister are a duo. Carly's too afraid to sing alone. And her sister doing this with Sean Connery gives Carly the confidence to be like, I'm not in a duo with you anymore. <laughs> but the funniest like, thing is alone. that her sister's like, okay, like is pretty yeah. okay with it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I guess that was pretty low. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, I, it's so, one, the Sean Connery stuff is so good, but also, I, and I don't know how, how, what your view is on this, but I, um, definitely relate to l- wanting to live in someone else's shadow, particularly female friends. Like throughout my life, I was just constantly been in a duo. Like if I run for student council, it was like me and my best friend. Like I just kind of never did anything alone. I was always in a duo. It- it's it's almost as if it's my life Achilles heel. Um, Cause also my mom was always in a duo too. She would get divorced and like she and her friend would live together. And so it's like this weirdly faded thing, but I loved, I would flourish in someone else's shadow. Like, they were stronger, they were confident, and I would just, like, blossom getting to hide behind them. And the biggest things that happen in life, like, when horrible things happen in life, like the Sean Connery thing, is when I learned to be alone. And, like, I'm still struggling with, like, it's, like, I'm still shocked I host this podcast alone and I don't do it with a female (laughs) friend. Like, that's crazy for me because I've always just, like, I just, and I love, like, giving someone and having someone else go first, but, like, standing on your own and being, like, no, it's just going to be me. I'm going to solo perform and, like, I'm enough. It's so scary. Well, that's the risk is that that's what she's facing is like the risk and and her sister, of course, like she and I've seen the two of them perform and Carly's definitely got like a stronger voice. Wait, you've seen them perform? No, no, no. Like, you know, on on YouTube. Oh, <laughs> okay. like I was YouTube. like, whoa, Leighton, how'd that happen? I have gone to uh, Simon's <laughs> sisters. No, so she, but, but her sister is very beautiful and very sweet looking and Carly is striking and gorgeous and has such a strong voice. And I'm like, yeah, she's the star. But for some reason, for whatever reason in her mind, she was just like, that's my beautiful sister. And that actually weirdly pushed her to do a lot. Like 
I think knowing that her sister Lucy was coming to Europe, she she met this guy Willie was like, oh, if my sister were here, as soon as my sister comes, he's going to fall in love with her. I better get with him first, you know? Like she always is kind of motivated by that. But then if she's out on her own, like it's the risk of performing by yourself and having to sort of stand on your own two feet. And um, that can be pretty scary. Yeah, I, I, I loved, I just loved that part so much because yeah, I think sometimes you form your identity in tandem with another person. So it's like as a child, Lucy's Lucy's the pretty one. Lucy's the talented one. And it was it was ingrained. Like the family dynamic was like, you sisters are going to be pitted against each other and there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to be about who's the most successful, who's the prettiest, who's the, you know, has the best husband or who has the most successful life. And uh, that's very freaking toxic and unhealthy. <laughs> very toxic and unhealthy. But I got to say, I love, I love and I find it's a pattern that the under the underdog wins i love you know what i mean it was supposed to be her sisters and it's going to be carly and because and she's not supposed to have this and she's going to because she's the scrappy one who like works um okay so she starts she's like i'm gonna do something on my own she has this she goes and sees bob dylan somehow someone connects her to bob dylan there's this incredible story where he's like nashville is amazing and he's screaming like believe me believe me (laughs) he's obviously high and um and he he's like, I have a song I want you to record. And then she it's supposed to be her big thing. And she is sexually harassed and and forced to fail. So basically the producer's like literally says to her, like, I'll make sure this goes well if you fuck me. And she's like, No, I'm not gonna do that. And so then he tanks the song and it just goes away. And Bob Dylan never calls her again. And it's it's that thing you're saying about this business, like it it's it still happens quite a bit, even though it was much worse. You know, every decade you go back is worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I mean, she talks a lot about men and boys in this book. Um, and that was just the nature. I mean, every single time she would spout off like a million names of like, this was the studio producer and this was the tech and this was the ele- uh, engineer and this was the guitarist. It's always men's names, obviously. Yes. Um, yeah. And so that's who she was surrounded with. And obviously there were probably very trustworthy, amazing, creative people who supported her and didn't try to sleep with her. But then she like came across in particular this time that was like supposed to be the beginning of her solo break. And it was like, they made the song to two keys too low or whatever for her. And she couldn't shine and she couldn't really say anything and thought, okay, well that's the end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's literally like, okay, I guess I'll become a camp counselor. And she does. She's just like, this won't be a singer anymore. And I uh, I think it gave her an out. Like, she was always afraid of it. But also, yeah, this idea of, like, men rule the world. If I'm not going to fucking, it's not going to happen. I guess I got to go work at this camp. Um, and then, which uh, it, it was just which was good for her to read. Which was good for her. And so then you're like, okay, we are in the 70s because she starts sleeping around all the time. I love this part of the book because she's even writing, like, I don't know why I'm sleeping around so much. Like, I don't want to be. But then sometimes these guys come over and I'm like, well, I mean, I guess, I guess since you want to. (laughs) And one of those guys is Jack Nicholson. And she makes him coffee. And he says to her, you ever have coffee in your bedroom? Which is like, you can hear him saying it. And she's like, that's a really good line. Such a good line. And uh, I was like, oh, Jack has game. And but then he like sleeps with her and she's like, oh, this is so great. And he's like, yeah, totally. I'm in a really serious relationship with a woman with children. But like, we should totally keep fucking. And she's like, (laughs) "Okay." (laughs) Um, And I 
she is, what I loved about this is that Carly to me is like the true every woman. And I feel like people try and write an every woman into scripts and they always fail. They always make her kind of like nothing versus what a real every woman is, which is like unique with huge pains and flaws. And also her her talent and her spirit is what's capturing men. She's not the hot sister. She's just like this person vibrating with love and attracting these men to her. And she has low self-esteem. So sometimes she's fucking all of them. And like, I just thought, yeah, she just really spoke to me in that way. Even down to like, she's like, I'm a songwriter. I don't sing my own songs. I just, I just play, which is like such a trope in movies. It's Coyote Ugly. You know, it's like, no, I can't. I can't sing on stage. Not me. And then they get on stage and they're like, la, 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 la. And yeah. you're like, okay, so you're incredible the whole time. Fuck you. But that's Carly. She's like the real version. Yeah, I mean, all the way from, like, when she's dating Nick, she's going to, I guess he's going to Harvard or one of those um, Whatever. Yeah. spots. Yeah, I think it <laughs> was Harvard. Places. <laughs> um, uh, and she's, like, singing in his dorm room to all of her, which would be so amazing to be in a dorm room listening to early Carly Simon singing <laughs> yeah. her little songs on her, like, three chords or whatever. Um, and, yeah, she. so then she's, like, with this guy who's her lifelong sing- singer, songwriter, partner, Jake. who helped her write yeah. one of her first, yeah, Jake who she met at camp and he is not uh in they're not in a relationship together which is actually really good for Carly yeah um that even though like I think there is it's almost like they look like each other or that they they look like everybody knew that they were destined yeah Yeah. that they were destined to be like best friends and they just get along really well um and he sort of fills in the gaps of like her songwriting in a way that is really good for her and so she hangs out with him a lot he's got a lot of these friends, these guy friends who she performs and sings and is very charming. And then they end up like at her apartment and she's always like cooking for them, which is just such a waste of time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't waste your time cooking for these guys. Like fancy meals. So true. So true. Yeah. Throughout the book, she's like, I made him chicken with cream sauce and cherries. And you're always like, whoa, this is fucking crazy. But yeah, (laughs) just don't do that. Just, just... Just, just skip. don't skip it. Just don't. And I also, I know that I, I think, and I've also listened to another like interview with her, but this is sort of, I think an underlying like thought, which is she, uh, thinks she has to marry every guy she has sex with. Like yes. that was like that era that the sort of like meeting of the, or like the clashing of these eras, which is like when you're growing up, you meet a guy and then you get married. And in, in any other time period, she would have married Nick and had kids with, kids with him because yeah. they were like college sweethearts. But she doesn't. And she ends up sleeping with people because it feels right and it's fun. But she also is like, do I love them? Like, it, it's a very confusing time because she's not getting into a relationship with any of them. Yeah. But I think she probably wanted to yes. a lot of the time or at least wanted them to love her back I yeah absolutely and I that's again like that's that every woman thing like she's there for love and it's and even when she it's like she doesn't want to be with Jack Nicholson but she enters into it going like I guess I'll marry you and then he's like no thanks she's like okay I guess we'll have sex anyway because you're here <laughs> totally um okay so we're gonna take a little break but when we come back if you were impressed by Jack Nicholson buckle up because it's gonna get a lot better <laughs> Sit. 
Sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains, but you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role, and we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book, it matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. So Carly's writing songs and she's she's like living her 70s life she's making cream custards for dudes um and she sees James Taylor on a magazine cover and she says out loud I'm gonna marry him I know it and she had met him like you said as a child they like grew up in the same um circles and she says uh if you believe in clairvoyant moments you would be right to because this was one of those and which I loved. Have you had a clairvoyant moment like that in your life? Not really. I know that like whenever I listen to this podcast, you always talk about there's like always a psychic moment. And yeah. I was like, where is it, Carly? And there it, was. <laughs> there it was. She had like that one clairvoyant, like the moment of like, I'm going to marry that guy. She had seen him. It's, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. It wasn't like somebody that she'd never met, but um, she just sensed that about him and it seemed like it came true spoiler yeah um but I think I kind of sense that and I don't know if it's just looking back but I do think like and now I know and so I'm like I always knew yeah but I do think that I kind of always knew with Adam um all the different times that I met him that I knew about him like every time I have met him before we were dating is so clear to me and there was like I kind of for a while avoided um, hanging out with him because I was like, I feel like it's just going to be a relationship and then yeah. we're going to get into it. We're going to be together. And I think I wasn't quite ready yet. Um, and because then as soon as we did, it was like that was day one and we just 
Uh, I love that. Now, here we are. You knew you're like, oh, this is going to be forever and I'm not ready for forever yet. So I have to like, (laughs) look the other, you know what I mean? Like, don't look me in the eyes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So she gets into these incredible things with other dudes. So Cat Stevens, he's is uh, the song Anticipation was written when he was late for a date where she'd cooked a bunch of shit for him again. Right. And she writes the song Anticipation. And then and then Warren Beatty happens. And the Warren Beatty thing is so good. I actually want to read the intro into um into meeting him. She said the 7Ds were dazzling and uninhibited. But in my dreams was that golden book's image I would chase forever. The apple pie cooling on the windowsill, married little wife with her devoted husband and perfect children swinging from the swing that was tied to the old oak in the backyard. Or was it a fruit tree? That tree would nourish love, keeping it safe from harm. It might be able to undo the haunting images of my parents' so-called marriage. I was counting on it. What a perfect time to meet Warren Beatty. (laughs) (laughs) Like, not... (laughs) He's like, oh, you're gonna get so fucked over. He's the chapter. The chapter on him is like so incredible. He has a list of great women he keeps of like his top women, and he's like, Carly, I'm gonna put your name at the top. And the list is like Marie Curie and Catherine the Great. And it's like, you fucking prick. What like, is that? I did not understand <laughs> that. Like, oh, it, it reminded me of the dude in your feminism class who's just like, I just really believe in like a woman's right to choose. <laughs> to fuck me later after class. Um, it was just like, oh, he has this list of like, I respect strong dead women. Yeah, you should a physical fuck me. list on a piece of white paper that he wrote yes. and put in his lapel pocket and sh- would show he probably, her. And she would show her. Multiple people. Like, I feel like, yes. Oh, yeah. He probably had to game. rewrite that list all the time so that he could put a new name of the girl he wanted to fuck at the top of, like, the, the list. It sounds so oh. juvenile, to be honest, but then he, he does her good. So, he, oh yeah, oh my god, that, that's the thing. If you're a dude out there listening to this podcast, or, you, or you're a lady and you want your dude to fuck better, just give him the chapter on Warren Beatty because Carly breaks it down. She's like, Here's what he did, here's what he did, here's what he did. And it's like, screw the book, the game. All men should just read what Warren did. Yeah, like you can't even be mad at him for all that no. he does. And he has so, first of all, whatever it is that he's got going on outside of the bedroom, like he is compulsive. Like there's something wrong with him that he for has sure. to do that constantly, um, like multiple times a day. But, um, he, yeah, he, he, he lays it down. He throws that D down. Yeah. Like he, you're like, whoa, like you're like, whoa, whoa. He threw that D down. And she's like 50 years later, like, uh, it was just, it just, it just like, was so just, good. Yeah. And she, oh my God. She's like, but not too many moves. And you're like, whoa. Like, yeah, what that are you was, talking about? I, I, yeah. And of I'm course, like, he's I've a never sociopath. heard of that. Yes, and he is a sociopath. Yeah, too. absolutely. Um, oh, the, the the stories about him are so good. Okay, so then J- the James Taylor stuff begins, and it begins with another incredible line where she goes to his concert. She's backstage. She says to him, and she feels possessive of him. Car- um, Carol King is in the room. His like good friend. He just broke up with Joni Mitchell, and she says to him, "I'd love to make lunch for you one day." And he says, "How about tonight?" Perfect. <laughs> I mean, just beautiful. Like, of course, you're going to have an epic love story. And all her stuff about love is just, like, next level. Like, I want her book to be the next Sex in the City. Like, the, like how she loves. And um, she and James just immediately are a couple. They go live together in his, like, wood shack. And they do crazy things. Like, um, 
I don't know, like the one thing I don't like is how much apathy is put on a pedestal like in this era and like how cool it is to not care. So like they're both nominated for Grammys and they don't go and they don't even talk about it. And they're like driving down the coast of California and they stop at an inn and there's a telegram from an exec being like, congratulations, you both separately won Grammys. And he had sent the telegram to every inn on the California coast because he just didn't know where they would stop. So epic, but also like so weird to be like, I don't even care like if I won a Grammy. I live in the woods and my art is comes first, <laughs> but I also am like very cool. <laughs> I know. I mean, I think like part of it that she sort of puts on it is that they're both very introverted and that they're both like, we just need to have privacy and not be around people. And like, I understand that, but they all, she's like, but also we both need a lot of attention. So where, where, <laughs> what happens? Yeah. There? Yeah. It, it, um, this is such a dumb comparison but like it really reminds me of alt comedy (laughs) which I know is stupid but (laughs) hear me out on this like it's considered like corny and lame to like do comedy that like makes money or that tourists would come and see right and like all the alt comedians are like oh you're so stupid right but they're doing the same thing as you they're just doing it in like a cool unaffected like we're all cool way and it like it remind like James Taylor reminds me of alt comedians throughout this book in a way that like hit all of my male comedian triggers of like <laughs> of like oh I'm better than you but also I secretly come from money myself and I'm like a Harvard boy but I like didn't even fucking go and it's like whoa, whoa. well it's it is really cringy and it's bitter yeah. instead of just being like I'm gonna be warm and like. I don't know, understand where you're coming from or whatever. And also, like, this was her for, like, Carly's first nomination. It was, like, really her first time in the spotlight. And she should be able to, like... Enjoy that. ...bask in the glow of that success. And he had been, I think, much more established. Um, Really quick, should we talk about the Warren Beatty, uh, the night that they spent together and how he was fucking somebody else the night before? let's go back. So she hears from him that he's like going to be in town. He's got an early call time the next day at like 5 a.m. But he's like, I have to see you. I'm coming over at like one or two or like middle of the night, lays it down, throws that D down. (laughs) And then she like sleeps in the next morning, goes to her therapist. She's like, I got fucked so good by Warren Beatty last night. And she looks at her therapist and he's like ashen. And she's like, are you okay? And he's like, you're not my first patient today to have spent last night with Warren Beatty. (laughs) And I about threw my book across the room. Like I (laughs) fell on the floor. I was like, what? And then he was like laughing it off. Like, oh, that's funny. Oh. Yeah. Warren was like, oh, did I? I guess I did. Whoops. And she's like, oh, it's cool. Like what world? What world? But also there's so many things going wrong. First and foremost, Warren Beatty is sleeping with multiple women that night and pretending he has like calls for movies or whatever. And he's still able to like throw it down that good. So, okay, that's crazy. That's what I mean. Like he's got something very wrong. Very wrong with him. But then the the next layer of crazy is that um, this therapist, Carly sees a type of therapist that is clearly very... Um, I don't want to say Hollywood because they're in New York, but like he has clients that are all in the same circles because how <laughs> in the fuck is, does he have a client that's also fucking Warren Beatty? Like he's, the, the therapist is seeing a certain type of woman. I don't know, maybe what maybe Warren Beatty had a real wide net. You never yeah, know. Yeah, I guess you never know. But I don't know, but I was also like, <laughs> and then also for the therapist to tell her that. I, I, I Half of me was like best therapist in the world. I, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, okay. But another part of me was like, are you supposed to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he, I don't know if he like, he didn't give names or whatever. So I guess that's fine. But no, I think that in that moment warrants uh, some sort of like warning, I guess. But I don't know. I mean, that guarantees that both of your clients are coming in next week being like, I've been cheated (laughs) on. (laughs) Yeah, that was crazy. Okay, so back to James Taylor. Um, So, yes, so they have this sort of, like, too cool for schoolness, and they even get married in that vein. It's, like, so casual and almost careless. Like, they're like, oh, we're going to get married in, like, three hours. Like, can can anyone be there? Um, They buy $20 rings, and which I loved that part, but, like, it's just like so lackadaisical but that's sort of like who they are and the magic of it but then afterwards she says she changes her name on her credit cards to mrs carly james taylor and she believes it says mrs james taylor don't fuck with me and i like loved that (laughs) she just like feels like so much power and like being married and also like yeah he's a huge superstar and on their way to get married they scribble a prenup like, they just write it on, like, a napkin of, like... And I I will say I actually loved that. Where I was like, this podcast really loves prenups. They could almost advertise on this podcast. Like, <laughs> that's how much they come up. But um, I love that they even attempted a prenup and that it was, like, handwritten was very cute. But also, like, that's how last minute their marriage was. And they're like, we need a waiting period if we do decide to break up. I liked that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I, I thought that was really special where it's like, okay, if we decide to divorce... there should be a clause of like, if we decide to divorce, we both have to go to couples therapy for three months and then we can actually do it. Like some like weird legal stuff like that. Like, why not? (laughs) Why not? Fuck your future self over. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I, I appreciate the, the small wedding. I mean, I I don't know. It seemed like she wasn't conflicted about like barely doing anything and she had a romantic, wonderful time and they had their banana cake or whatever. But like, it's still, you know, I don't know. Like, was it romantic? Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think like the the part where she talks about falling in love with him and how they ma- they're such good matches for each other, and how sweet that uh, description is. Like how the first time they laid together, and how they're it's like he's a note and she's the corresponding note, and how their bodies just like they I don't know. It was just very yeah. beautiful and obviously poetic, and um, it just like made her feel at ease. But yeah, he, that's the real love part. Yeah. Yes. But, but before they get married, he says, I have to tell you something. This is what I do. And does heroin in front of her to show her. And he obviously like most heroin addicts doesn't want to be doing it at all. And is like, I'm done with it. And then he never does it again. And he's clean and it was a happy ending. Or is that, no, no that's not, no. okay, yeah. No, no, I mean, we wish, he wishes, uh, and she wishes, we all wish. Um, no, the, I actually think it's so interesting how, I mean, he is an addict throughout this marriage, and she, it's like she leaves it in the background of her writing. So she'll have things of, like, he was supposed to watch the kids, but then the kids were like, daddy's asleep, and he, like, can't move. And she's not spelling out, like, he's doing heroin throughout the marriage, but he definitely is. And I think that was just one show of like, I'm going to throw it away. But like, and I think in his own autobiography too, he was like, I'm an addict and I ruined my marriages because of it. Yeah. I think like in a way, I really respect the way that she uh, went about it because it really isn't her. I mean, obviously she's talking about 
fucking all these guys and like her, you know, relationship with him. But it's not as much like her story to tell. And I think the the thing that like a junkie, what they're really good at is lying. And so she yeah. probably was just in this constant state of being lied to and not knowing what the truth was. And that's sort of like kind of her whole life, you know, like from her parents' marriage, the sham of her, their marriage and like, you know, being married to somebody who, you know, the saying like, how do you know a junkie is lying? Their lips are moving. Like that's what she had to live with. And what she did was she met and married this guy who, you know, he's talented and he's handsome in like a cult leader kind of way. And um, (laughs) he, you know, but he also is a child. He's such a child. And she's like, I'm going to take care of him. I'm like, I'm his mother and I'm going to care for him. And I think too, like she got with somebody who's more fucked up than she is. And that's not the thing to do when you are not yet. um, Yeah. When you're (laughs) fucked up, don't get with somebody more fucked up. Do, Hmm. do the opposite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That, yeah, that's such an interesting point with him because he, he is going to become very cold and unloving and she's like doing all the work and kind of mirrors like her relationship with her dad like he didn't give her that love and like she's doing all the work I I agree she writes about the drug stuff really well what's interesting is that she really loves James Taylor like regardless of what we're about to tell you and it's crazy she loves him and and I came away from this hating him which is so interesting because she's not writing about him in a negative way she's like James Taylor is incredible and I was like I hate him um so Okay, so what kind of starts their their rocky marriage is one, she has an affair with Mick Jagger. A and it starts like when she's with James and he even sings back up on the song You're So Vain. He's Mick Jagger's voice is on that track, and that's like how their thing started. The night before they get married, Mick Jagger's wife Bianca calls James and is like, Do not marry Carly. She's having an affair with my husband. And James is like, I believe Carly. I believe my wife. And he hangs up. And What's incredible about this is that James is going to cheat a shit ton on her. So, and it's kind of crazy because it's like Carly probably sowed these seeds. Like, whether he was going to or not, like, she starts it with Mick Jagger. And Mick Jagger even sends her roses every day from a pseudonym. And she's like, oh, it's from someone else. And James is like, okay. (laughs) And she doesn't tell him to stop. And And then You're So Vain blows up. And of course, of course, one of the first shakes in their marriage is that she becomes more successful than him for a brief moment in time. And and he can't take it. Yeah, he <laughs> needs his mommy. He can't. I'm um, the big uh, guitar boy. <laughs> I'm sweet baby James. I'm um, sweet baby James. This yeah, bitch has I, his number one hit. Um, yeah, yeah. I, and she also, she doesn't really talk, she doesn't go into her affair with Mick really and not nearly enough no she just is basically like i did a lot of stuff that i'm really ashamed of and it was really bad but um she also like i think so much of it was just like she couldn't not have that attention and not and like let that like godlike star just kind of pass by who was pursuing her very aggressively very aggressively yeah and and she says because there was an an obstacle in his way that's the only reason why he wanted her and she's like that's true of most men and you're like carly (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and and she allows that in but so then when one day when james is like hey by the way i need to get tested for the clap 
She's like, okay. She, and she's like, I'm so, she was so sweet. And she's like, let's get you help. You must be in so much pain. That must have been hard for you to tell me. And then three hours later, she walks down the stairs and tries to beat his ass. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the I actress. She's playing a part. She's like, I'm going to be the cool with this. Like, I'm cool and it's okay. And she's playing a part, like, that yeah. it's somehow okay. And obviously, it's not. It's not okay. And she even no. said, like, I felt like I was in his way if I was ever on tour with him like they were in Japan and they were having like you know escorts the rest of his band I felt like oh am I like infringing on his fun it's like yeah you're his wife like you're his pregnant wife you're infringing on his fun that's okay (laughs) yeah I mean well that's also what's crazy is that when he's like I think I have the clap she was about to say I'm pregnant and Mm. she has to like go through this cheating thing with him which she doesn't even fully say what comes out of it but um, but but then has to be like, okay, and we're singing together and I'm pregnant. And okay, so you and I both talked about how we have to include this quote on the podcast and it is fucking gutting. Um, these aren't Carly's words. This is a quote from Diane Johnson who wrote in her book, The Shadow Knows, the following quote. I often think that motherhood in its physical aspects is like one of those prying disorders, such as hay fever or asthma, which receive verbal sympathy, but no real consideration in view of their lack of fatality, in which, after years of attrition, can sour and pervert a character beyond all recovery. And Carly says it was a quote I identified strongly enough with to put in my diary. (laughs) I mean, I feel like everyone listening just, like, took a punch to the gut on that one. Like, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, she definitely, like, you can see her life, her values, everything shifted for her when she had children. And definitely, like, caring for James shifted, too. Like, suddenly she was, like, breastfeeding a baby and, like, cooking meals and making sure. And she also had their son was very sick because he had some sort of kidney disorder that wasn't identified for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so that was her focus. And he was like nodding out on the couch. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, I'm sure he was also present a lot, but um, yeah, her, her like, and she talks about that, like how they were very attentive parents together at one time. Yeah. She, she really kind of blames the, she almost, it's not that she blames herself, but she really says like, oh, I became a mother and I cared for my kids yeah. and my sick kids. And like, I didn't give sexiness to James and I wasn't a rock star anymore. And almost as if like, that's like the undoing of their marriage. I, and again, like the, it starts with like the, like you're cooking meals for these guys. You're having one night stands with like, you don't need to do that, you know, <laughs> it, it, like save it for your marriage. And, and then she's doing it. And it's like, the, it's really this constant battle of like being, you, you, again, you can't have it all. Can't do it all. You yeah. can't be making meals from scratch and, you know, they they have, like, James and her have this house that they're constantly building on. They always have saws and drills. It would drive me nuts. And, like, always having people there and always having people kind of, like, sucking on them and, like, their money and their land. And it's just, like, a lot of chaos, it sounds like. But she was the mother and taking care of all these people. And he kind of continued in his, like, irresponsibleness. Yeah. Another quote I think I I mentioned, and I, and I want to say this was even from the same 
book, which is uh, from Diane Johnston, uh, Johnson, where she describes a character holding her children's hands as they cross the street. The woman wonders how her children can possibly trust her since her capacity to trust herself is so fragile. And then she goes on, the same was true for James and me for the next decade. He and I would grip each other's hands against the ever onrushing traffic of the curious, the jealous, the smilers with knives. Um, and definitely, I think that's something that she is haunted by. Like, and I think that's true for anybody who like has a shitty mom or a shitty dad, or in her case, lucky she both. both. Um, <laughs> that she is haunted by that, you know, the sense that like she couldn't possibly trust herself. How could she take care of a child, or how could she take care of her husband or her relationship? Like, it's so fragile. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's very and sad. It's very sad. I love that quote you read about the smilers with knives because she's talking about this business that we're both in. Um, <laughs> and we love it. And we love it. Um, and um, But just like how, yeah, she's dealing with all that chaos and then she's dealing with like more and more. I And, and this is sad. And, I, and you can tell me if you uh, agree or disagree. But before you get in this business, everyone will tell you. And it's an age old quote of like, Hollywood is crazy. It's it's a nightmare town and it's a really hard life if you choose this. And you're like, yeah, okay, got it. And and the more years I'm in it, the more layers of horrific evil I uncover where I'm like, it is, all those quotes cannot do justice to how bad this place is. <laughs> Which I'm saying from like fully working in here. This uh, inspirational here no quotes by Chelsea Devontes. <laughs> But I mean, like, it is just, or maybe I'm truly naive, but like, it is fucking shocking how crazy people are. It's just, it's really startling. And I think it even takes people who were normal and makes their brains crazy from, from not succeeding, from trying so hard, from whatever it is. And then people turn crazy and then they just start doing insane things like Carly describes in the book. Yeah, I wonder if a truly, truly normal person decides like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to be an actor and then actually is able to reach that level of success. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Although what is normal? I'm not really sure. No, no. Yeah. It's a hard, like uh, chicken before the egg thing, but it definitely is like some sort of brokenness brings you here. And then like some cult leader turns you insane. And then you, (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. Okay. So back to James and Carly. So many ups and downs and, and James starts cheating and she finds out because a friend's like, oh, yeah, James' girlfriend. Like, that's how out he is with his girlfriend. She assumes Carly knows. So then Carly starts cheating. And I was like, tight. Thank God. I was so worried she wasn't going to. So they're both cheating. And then, and then she confesses to him. And he's like, OK, good, because I'm seeing several women. And one of the women is named Evie. And she finds out that Evie actually lives in James, his his rehearsal apartment. And... um while the others go away, Evie doesn't go away. She's like a full girlfriend. And Carly wants to meet her. And James is like, nah, like she doesn't want to meet you. And she's like, okay, they somehow like continue being married, I think for a long time. Until one day, the greatest part of the book to me, she's like, I have to go meet Evie. I got to meet her. It's very weird because you're like, why do you want to meet her? And, but it's because of Ronnie. Like, so her dad let Ronnie live on the third floor and steal his wife away and never said a word about it. And so she starts feeling like, I can't do this. Like, I'm going to yell at Evie. I'm going to yell at the Ronnie. 
But she also says she wants Evie to know that she's a person and a real human and a wife and and that she's nice. And this really cut me because, I mean, I learned this lesson all the time. I learned it recently. Demons do not care that you are a human. Like, if you are talking to a demon and you're like, I'm a very nice person, they're like, good, yum, more to eat you with. You know what I mean? Like, and like... I hate it. Like, I, th- I think I kind of have a, a weak heart. And I'm saying weak because I judge it. But I think me and Carly both have weak hearts. And I don't like it where you go in being like, but I'm a good person. Yeah, and I've been talk. nice the whole time. Like, I just, yeah, exactly. Like, you're being civil and you're being kind or you're being fun to work with or whatever it is. And you're just like, yeah. they don't care. That's not they That hasn't care. mattered to them at all at any point. It wouldn't have mattered at if you were, point. like, a bitch from the very beginning. And the other thing no, is yeah. that James tells her multiple times it's not about you, which oh, ugh, disgusting. Just hate, just hate him. You prick. <laughs> <laughs> At least be like, yeah, the sex is gone. Instead, he's like, this isn't even about you. Like, removes her fully from her own marriage and is like, I'm with a girlfriend. Yeah, and makes her feel small for feeling that it is about her. Like, th- this, I'm the other person in the marriage, right? Like, in in. Yeah, and making her feel like that she shouldn't even be having these feelings she's having. And then turns out it kind of, according to him, through Evie, actually, is that how she says it in the book? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, Evie, Evie, I'm not sure. Whatever, she's a bitch. Um, She's a bitch. (laughs) She, um, it seems like it is about her, even in his, like, warped mind. Oh, my God, yes. Okay, so... So she's like, I'm going to meet her. I'm going to meet this woman. It's so crazy. She's like, James, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go meet Evie. And because their relationship is so volatile, he's just like, uh, yeah, whatever. Like, I know you don't mean it. Like, And I think he's also high and he's watching a VHS about animals. <laughs> this is all true. He's just like, and he's been watching the same movie all day long. And it's just like antelopes like running at each other. And he's just like watching it. She's like, okay, perfect. Perfect timing. <laughs> so she <laughs> leaves. She goes to this apartment in New York. She'd already had an extra pair of keys and the woman opens the door she's very tiny I was immediately like mad for Carly it's like this tiny little petite woman with perfect hands and Carly like hides her hands in her coat because she's like oh I'm hideous and she says uh I'm Carly and the woman says well you're no friend of mine and Carly says I know but I'm still Carly and you're like oh no oh no and then oh god so Evie screams horrific things at her for two pages. And Carly writes them down. I mean, I just loved her for this. She writes down all the horrible things Evie tells her about herself. And they're so horrible because they all come from grains of truth. And it's all like what James has told Evie about Carly. And and we've already read in the book like, Oh, James hated how, like, bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie she was. I can't even say it. Wow, that's how trashy I am. Um, <laughs> it's bourgeois. <laughs> bourgeois. <laughs> James was like, you're so bourgeois. And she was like, no, I'm not. And then Evie's like, you're a bourgeois. <laughs> and, like, and, like, you wanted a pool in the house. And all these things that we've already read about James not liking about her. Again, James comes from money. Like, fuck you, dude. Like, how— like, you grew up next to each other in the Hamptons. Like, whatever. So so then she's like, yeah, and you breastfeed your son for too long. And James says your son is going to become a fairy because you're still breastfeeding him, which Carly was doing because her son is sick and has this kidney disease. So she's still breastfeeding him when he's two, which isn't that old. 
I mean, I'm not a mom, but I no. don't think that's and crazy. And also, like, she even wrote about it earlier in the book, saying, like, it was, it was you know, something that was recommended because the child was so ill. From a doctor, <sighs> yeah. And sorry, baby and, James, yeah. that you can't be breastfed when you're 35. Yeah. <laughs> that's He's it. so there mad it and jealous. jealousy. Yeah, and that he and he tells the mistress that my son's gonna become gay and uses like the slur for fuck that. Him. And then th- fuck him. And then the mistress tells Carly that. It's like, so I mean, this is decimating because if the mistress was just like, you're ugly and you don't fuck James anymore, so now he's with me, it's just sort of like, okay, these are things we can deal with. But she's like hitting all these like pain points on Carly. And uh, he, and then so then finally something incredible happens. The mistress says something that's categorically untrue. She says, James hates how you get manicures. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> Saying it out loud, I was like, this is insane. And Carly no- Carly's like, yes, good. I'm actually sure that one's not true. Because throughout her life, James has always been like, I'm so glad you don't get manicures like these other hideous beast bourgeois woman. <laughs> um, you're, you don't do that. And so she finally gets her wits about her. And is like, no, this is not true about me. And James just told you these things to justify what he's doing with you. And I I loved this because, again, we cart. Like, if someone tells me, like, you're a piece of shit enough times, I'll be like, I bet I am. <laughs> and you know what I mean? And I'll have to go and search for proof that I'm not. Like, I don't come with the core that's like, I'm a good person. Like, I come with a core that's like, whatever you think, dad. Oh, daddy issues. And so if someone was like, you're bad, I'd be like, okay. And you have to, like, remember, like, I'm actually not. And and you're a demon. Yes. But also, it it depends on who it's coming from. This is coming from her her husband, who she's desperate to try to work out the relationship and is obsessed with him and loves him and has born birth two of his children. Yes. Um, And hearing the things that she fears the most about herself, the things that she hates the most about herself, and it's being put out there also by somebody who's not in the marriage. The other person is trying to break up the marriage. Yeah. And she's being told these harmful, damning, awful things that she... I guess has to find some sort of like lighthouse, like, oh no, I don't get manicures. Uh, that's not true. But why do you have to do that? Why can't you just be like, no, he's fucked up. You're a gold digger or whatever it is. Yeah. And like, get out of my marriage, you know? But I know, but that is the um, part that I yeah. like loved though, because. Because she has low self-esteem. So when, I mean, like, literally a tiny, minuscule woman is filtering the hate your husband has for you. Like, how did Carly even walk out of there alive? Like, I don't know if I would have made it, you know? Like, I would need, like, no, I don't get manicures, you whore. (laughs) Well, yeah. but And she was very, like, classy about the whole thing. But I don't know how they stayed together after this. Because, like, I had not at all the exact same incident. I've had very many, like... This is like not only red flag, but like right in your face. Like here you go. Like this is the th- like hot leave. red-handed. Like the thing. Like this is the end. And like it's almost like I do oftentimes or have in the past needed like the most sure sign that it's over. Yeah. Um. And I remember once leaving a relationship because I found out um, that the person I was with had these like very condemning thoughts about me. 
Um, and so many of them I can look back on and be like, I always suspected those were things that he thought yeah. and it doesn't hurt any less, but, um, and it, it only reflects badly on him now to me where I'm like, you're an insecure piece of shit. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so wrong. But, um, but it hurts like when it's somebody that you love and that it's like, wow, you were really preying upon the most insecure things. Um, and not only that, but they're just like, you're talking about yourself, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, that is such a great point. And it it is just such a common thing for a relationship to end. And then people say the most evil things towards each other. And it's like, you should have never been with that person if you truly think this horrific thing about them, but they only say it because they want to hurt you. But, you know, coming from them, it's like, yeah, relationships get messy. This is coming from the mistress. Like, I don't know if I'd be strong enough for this. I, uh, I, this is my favorite page in the book. So she's, she's in Evie's, well, she's in her husband's rehearsal space that Evie lives in. And she goes into the bathroom and she says, she looks in the mirror and she says, no, it was just me, my own reflection. Whatever was coming through at this moment was something I'd been afraid of my whole life. But in its emerging outline, I wasn't afraid of it at all. I didn't have to squint to see it. No, it was purely, completely mine, filling me with something I, that I felt uncannily, like awe. I could control what I was seeing, but I no longer had to. It was in command. It had no competitors. It might not stick around permanently. It might come and go and even vanish for long stretches of time. But I knew now for certain that it was there. In the light of the mirror, I didn't look pretty for sure, nor was that the point. But I did look fierce. In truth, I was staring the beast in the eye. I held its gaze, and I thought, cool. God is in me. <laughs> she like makes the beast into her ally. And like, I am the beast and like the beast lives with me every day. So like, fuck you lady. And she's like, what am I doing here? And she leaves. It's so incredible. She's a queen. <laughs> she's know, a hard. queen. She it's just hard to like, say words after that poetry. I don't even, I know. I just feel like that's like the perfect, like that's, that's, that is what it is, which is like, this is the the height of well, what you think at this point in the book is the height of the 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 pain she's in, the like um, the like disillusionment, the like the breakdown of her marriage, her insecurities, like all of it. It's actually weirdly just the beginning, but like she, yeah, somehow she manages to like let that stuff go. And I think it is partly like she had this very deep love for him and really just wanted to work it out. And I think like, I mean, that's just me being like armchair. No, like, no, I think she really you know. did. She really was just like, I love him. I want to stay with him. And yeah. she just and couldn't. She, and she had his kids yeah. and, and that's a really hard thing to kind of step away from. And I mean, and she was taught to stick through it. Like her, you know, right. her parents taught her like you cheat, but you stay married. I, well, what's so interesting is, yeah, they, they, continue on after this but this is really sort of the end of the marriage and what I find so beautiful about her book is that it's written in 2015 many years after the marriage ends but the book ends with the end of the marriage to James Taylor which yeah. really spoke sad volumes to me but also beautiful like she's just sort of giving us this piece of her life and then like this is we're kind of at the end of the book after this she goes on stage solo 
Her sister is there, Lucy, the the one who was a Simon sister with her. And apparently Lucy hadn't even come to see her a lot throughout the years because she was so like devastated that she wasn't like the famous one. And so her sister's there. She has all that pressure. Her mom has kind of disappeared from the book, but also had written Carly out of her will. Cause she's like, you don't need it anymore. And your sisters are ruined and you're the, Thanks, you're the famous mom. one. Yeah. Such a bitch. <laughs> and, um, She's taking care of Ben, who's been so sick, and the James marriage has fallen apart, and she goes on stage, and she has a panic attack. And it's so—I mean, I was sobbing at this part. I could barely get through that part. I I can't even imagine you listening to it, too, because she tells the audience, like, this is what I've been afraid of my whole life, and it's happening. It's happening. I'm having a panic attack. And she invites the audience to come up on stage with her because she's like, I can't be alone right now. I can't have you be so far away. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so emotional. It's so emotional. And hundreds of people go up on stage with her and just sit around her and, like, are patting her back. And she's, like, trying to sing these songs. But she's describing, like, what a panic attack is like so perfectly. And, and, And then... All of a sudden, she's bleeding, like profusely bleeding to the point where like a college kid who was like patting her knee to like, as she's like at the piano, pulls his hand away because it's covered in blood. And she she never tells us if she was having a miscarriage or what, but that she like goes off stage, showers and comes back on to finish the show. You know what? I And again, she you're right. She doesn't describe. I assumed that it was like a heavy period. Maybe it was a miscarriage. I don't know. But um, I do think like that kind of thing does happen when you're having like either a panic attack or like something very serious happens emotionally. Like you can start bleeding. Yeah. Um, and uh, she talks about putting on her like light silk outfit before her pink her pink light silk pink. <laughs> I'm like if you're waiting for your period because you're afraid you're pregnant put on some light pants because you'll get it um and in her case she was on stage in front of thousands of people and um it is weirdly like the worst possible thing that could happen in her nightmare for her whole life and when you put it like that I was like oh man she she really has gone through so much and she was her whole life afraid of being on stage like it was the scariest thing. And I agree. I think being on stage is really, really terrifying. And you have like this weird out of body experience and she just got so much pressure. Like she's had this marriage that has been super public where they write songs like no secrets and like, <laughs> I like, like things like, you know, we're always going to be together and yeah. you're my mockingbird or God. whatever. Like, you know, that, that it's like her whole identity is wrapped up in this lie and it's even bigger than the one that her parents presented for her whole childhood. And then she's just like bleeding and like people are like patting her oh my and God. it's so Yeah, it's really, it's just like the moment of her, like, I guess her sort of unraveling and having to let go of whatever she was holding on to. Which was James. And it might be more than that, but it's really like, because she goes into the hospital, she just stays a month. And this kind of mirrors her dad had been hospitalized as well. While she's in the hospital, James gets into a relationship with a woman named Catherine, and that becomes his second wife while she's in the hospital. But he's also visiting her every day. Right. Yeah, that is very odd. I mean, it is tremendously emotional. And, and having the audience come on stage and sing with her, and it's like this night in Pittsburgh, it's it's unreal. And, and then the book is just kind of dissolves like that, where it's like, 
the marriage is over. And she writes, when a marriage ends, you don't get to choose what remains, which was like so haunting. And then she still lives in her and James' epic house. And stuff like the fishing pole he put over the door, like she hasn't taken it down. And I hated it. I hated it for her. I was like, get out of the house. Yeah, Yeah, but she writes... Um, it took her a long time to to learn this, but like it's okay to to you don't have to stop loving someone just because they don't love you. And I love that journey for her, but I don't want it anywhere near me. <laughs> no, agree. I don't want to be uh, loving I, James Taylor as he's like with his new wife and shit. No, well, so. You texted me what was the middle of the night to me. Um, it was like nine o'clock. I was sleeping. But uh, do I hate James Taylor? And I was like, yes, yeah, you do. You wrote back. You're like, yeah, you and hated him. I never thought I'd say that. But I do think like, so she talks about his like callousness and coldness, obviously towards her, but to anybody that he used to be with, like Joni Mitchell, she's like, how could you shut off from Joni Mitchell and be like, don't ever talk to me again? And she was always afraid that he was going to be like don't ever talk to me again. And that's exactly what he did as her ex-husband. And apparently, like, as... I I don't know how, like, the rest of their, like, upbringing of their children went, but he won't even, like, let the kids give her his number. Like, they don't have contact at all. And I was like... I didn't know that. That's fucked up. Like, that's your kid's mom, you know? Like, unless she's so insanely toxic, like, you can't just be like, I'm never talking to you again. Yeah. It's really dark. That's incredibly dark. Yeah. And I, and, you know, to sort of deny that, like, uh, and, you know, they broke up and then, like, slept together again in a very weird way, too, which she describes in the book, which is not love making. He says strip, bitch. (laughs) Yeah, it's not romantic. Um, But, like, so, yeah, I think, like, it's weird that they don't talk at all. It's it's sad and it's strange to be like, I had two kids and I was married to this person for 11 years and just never, ever have contact. Yeah, Um, that's where he's clearly messed up. And then also, for her, what I wish, and definitely what I would do, would be like, fuck this dude. Like, my book would be very different. I'd be like... Listen, if we were happily co-parenting, like, we love him. But since he's cut me out. (laughs) (laughs) But that's why I love, I mean, it seems like she's close with her children. But that's why I love her. Like, she talks about him. And she, honestly, everyone else who did it wrong, too. She, like, is pretty nice. Yeah. Um, Even though she's laying the facts out, she's not like, and that was such an asshole thing. Like, she's just she's just giving you the facts and actually it's almost like even the childhood portion you're like right now she's a child and then when she's in the relationship with Willie you're like she's a 20 year old girl like you feel the age she is and that's why she's so effective at writing um this this particular you know her story but I read because I've been doing like a crazy deep dive afterwards because I'm like what is wrong with James Taylor um (laughs) but I was reading it <laughs> um he's a psycho um he it, he like got married to the woman that he was having an affair with as you mentioned but he gives her credit with getting him off of drugs um like later on and when he's been asked like i guess he did a memoir up until the time of his first marriage but that he kind of doesn't even give it any like love now like when they talk about it that people are like, oh, so, you know, Carly Simon wrote this book and said, like, you were a drug addict and that you were not a great father. Like, he left one night and didn't come back for the entire night and yeah. she's just there alone with a sick baby. Um, and his 
reaction is just like, yeah, like you should just never like get married or have kids before you're 35. Like, (gasps) you know, just like it was always doomed. Like it was never going to work out. And I'm like, cool, cool. The cruelest thing you could do, like put in like Carly was annoying. Carly, like at least let her exist, you know, let me exist. And instead you just genuinely do not care about me. Like, wow, that's that's cool. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I think his book was like, it didn't include any, any of his marriages. Um, but it was like up until the time he was 21 or something. And he has like a crazy past in life as well. But like his mother died, I think, in childbirth. And he was, it just, he's got a crazy upbringing. Um, but he, yeah, like he won't even really acknowledge like all the things that might have gone wrong. And I mean, I guess you don't have to publicly do that in the way that she's doing it. But for some reason, I just give her so much more credit. And I'm like, you know why she's the better person in this? Because she wrote this book and this is a piece of art and she's capable of doing this. And like, she's just as talented as he is. Yeah. And but she has she's more able love. to like put it out. Yeah, and yes. more kindness. Okay, so wait, so let's read the last page. I can't believe we're here. I can't believe we're to this point. I know. I'm actually sad to be leaving the book. (laughs) How does a person, me or anyone else, move ahead, push forward through life? The answer is that none of us does, not entirely. I have simply found a way of loving through whatever absences or dejections have fallen like trees, branches in my path. I move forward by incorporating whoever or whatever is missing or have vanished into my very being, my body, my breath. The psychologists call this introjection, but I call it surviving. I lost daddy and I incorporated him inside me. I lost my marriage and James became a part of how I look at life. I let go of Orpheus, not realizing perhaps that I had just, I just had to get to know him before I could become him. She's obsessed with Orpheus throughout the book. So I guess yeah. that, that won't make sense without it. But um, I just love the part of like, how do you, how do you, how do you go on? How do you like put one foot forward after the other. And she actually tells you like, I, I, the things that I lost, I made them a part of me. And like, that's how I moved on. Yeah. And she, and maybe it was a little bit before that, but she also talks about how she just stopped trying to not love. Is that kind of how she puts it? Yes. She's like, I, I stopped, you know, trying to, I guess, like be detached or whatever. Um, Because really what she's doing throughout this book is like loving thoroughly, like everyone around her. And she's just being fucked over every (laughs) step of the way. And it's actually uh, very similar to the, again, the, the, the story that she like talks about that last train ride with her father, how he, he's telling her like, oh, there's this book you should read. She's like kind of being a bitch. And she's like, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, the, the moral of the story is that um, you'll be like the true meaning of being rich is giving without thinking that you'll be receiving. And I'll be damned if that isn't the final note in the book. And I don't think she's mean, I don't, I mean, maybe she's just a genius and like meaning for that to be, but it's just, oh, so it wraps up so beautifully. God, that is so stunning. Okay. We'll end on that. We, we (laughs) end every podcast with a, a thank you to the author. So, um, my thank you to Carly is, um, Thank you for that working girl soundtrack. I mean, let there ever run <laughs> incredible. And reading this book, I was like, I got to rewatch working girl. And even though there are some moments now that wouldn't be considered PC, that shit holds up. I love that movie. Um, and thank you for her music. And while her music was a lot in my household, very weirdly, James Taylor's albums were really played after one of my mom's divorces. So he's like a divorce soundtrack for me. And uh, now I hate him. So that's funny. And um <laughs> 
um, Carly, thank you for this book because it like helped me, me and my mom connected more over certain parts of it. And thank you for fucking so much and telling us about it. That is fucking cool. Like that's a goddamn book. <laughs> I mean, I, there's not really much more to say. It's absolutely like a sex machine on every level. Thank you so much, Carly. <laughs> um, I loved this book so much and I'm like, Kind of, I really am going to save it and read it again in the future. And I feel like I recommend it to anyone. It's just so beautiful. And she's incredible. She's so incredible. Okay, and after reading this memoir, Layton, do you think you might give us a memoir one day? One day. Okay, one day. okay that's all I need. <laughs> I want your book so bad. <laughs> oh, I'm very much a work in progress. It'll be a very long time from now. It can be a long-ass book. <laughs> Um, is there anything you would like to, everyone knows your social handles, but is there anything you would like to plug or even a, a concept or a thought, or if you just want to say like, bye, um, our president now has a stutter as well. And, um, so there you go. That's you can so really work with it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just really, I'm so happy to be doing this with you. I love this podcast. So the only thing I want to plug is this podcast. <laughs> That's all for this week's episode. I loved talking to Layton. She's just so full of heart and grit, and she makes you feel so amazing when you're around her, which is such a rare quality in the world. Um, she's just like such a gem. I'm obsessed, could go on forever. Okay, so if you guys want to see the visual story that goes along with this episode, follow me on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes. In my story, I will post an entire um visual set that goes along with the episode, including pictures of James Taylor looking like every fuckboy hipster alt comedian and proving my theory correct. Um, in my Instagram stories is also where I recap the books before we record the podcast. So if you want to follow along before you record or check out books after the fact, they're always saved in my highlights. Don't forget to subscribe for upcoming episodes or just to show your support. And you can always leave a nice review. I read them all. I love them. And you guys, by the time this episode comes out, the Britney Spears documentary on Hulu will be up. So listen, I know it's not a memoir, but go to the Celebrity Book Club podcast Facebook group so we can dish. And if you want to do a little prep, I read Lynn Spears' memoir this summer and recapped it. It's saved in a highlight on my Instagram. The book is... <laughs> um, to say it's infuriating is an understatement. It made me as mad as um, Drew Barrymore's ghostwriter, Todd Gold. So go check it out. And I will see you on the Facebook group or on my Instagram or next week. Thank you so much to the production team here at Stitcher, executive producer Daisy Rosario, associate producer Corinne Wallace, and producer Brandon Nix. Thank you to Apple Podcasts for spotlighting us. We appreciate it so much. And thank you to everyone here at Stitcher. I will see you next week.